And this is the word of the Lord. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came in the time for the dead to be judged. And for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. And the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake and heavy hail. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet. And on her head, a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that, she, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word. So mysterious and beautiful and profound. And uh, Lord, we need you to be our teacher. We need your word to be our teacher. The, The rest of the Bible to explain to us strange passages like this one. And that as we give our minds to study these things, you would lead us to our Savior who is now enthroned in heaven the Lord of lords, the King of kings. And we thank you that his spirit now uh, dwells and moves among us, and may he lead us into all truth. And so we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, as I said, we're returning to our study of the uh, the book of Revelation, and uh, as we begin re-entering this book, I'd like to say a few words about how are we going to interpret Revelation. You might have thought that just as I read that passage. What was that all about? Well, as most of you know, Revelation is is considered maybe the most mysterious book that was ever written. Uh, Some people just give up on interpreting it because they they said there's been so many different attempts to interpret Revelation, and so why even bother? Who knows what the truth is? And so, well, I don't think that's an option to just give up on interpreting it. Uh, So how are we going to interpret it? Well, I think that the book itself, Revelation, um, gives us an interpretive key. And I think the opening verse, the opening sentence of the whole book is preparing us, this is how you should read this book. 
And so the opening sentence of the book of Revelation, Revelation 1.1 says this, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. So opening sentence. And I think that's an interpretive key. And, and those words give us the basic interpretive tools that we need to make sense of this book. And so let me just point out three things just as a way of an introduction from that opening verse that are going to be a help to us. Okay, so how are we going to interpret, interpret uh, Revelation? Well, the first thing is that Revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, and uh, it is a book that is revealing who Jesus is and the meaning of his work. So basically what that means is that Revelation is about the same topics as the rest of the New Testament. And so it's very common for interpreters to say, oh, you know, the rest of the New Testament, what's it about? Well, it's about the Gospels, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It's about the book of Acts, these disciples that, that went out into the Mediterranean world after Jesus. And then there's all these letters to the first churches in the Mediterranean that the Apostle Paul wrote and Peter wrote and James wrote. And so you have all these events in the New Testament that are about the first century. And then you come to Revelation and you say... We start thinking it's about, you know, events that are going to happen in the Middle East in the 21st century. And you say, why was the whole New Testament about one topic? And then all of a sudden, Revelation is about a totally new topic. And uh, no, Revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ, just like the Gospel of Mark is, just like the Book of Romans is. And what both of those books do is they show how Jesus is a fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament. And so that's going to be one of the most important interpretive principles for us is the Old Testament is quoted all over the place in, the, in Revelation. So if you're going to understand Revelation, you have to go back to the Old Testament and see what these things are talking about. We'll see that in this passage as we go along. So, so first, it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. The second thing the beginning says is that it's a book that God gave to his servants. It's the word the bondservants. And that word for servants is a word that's used throughout the New Testament to describe the apostles and the disciples of the early church. They call them, so the Apostle Paul calls himself a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And so um, this was a book that was written to real people facing real challenges at a certain moment of history. And in particular, Revelation is a book preparing early Christians for martyrdom. In fact, Revelation is a book that is filled with suffering. We're going to read through about all kinds of suffering. But what's surprising is that it's not about the suffering of Jesus. It's the suffering of his followers. And we're going to talk more about that as we get into this passage. But the way I like to think of uh, Revelation is it's like Jesus' book of the Bible. You know, as you read through the Bible, there's all these key people who wrote. You know, there's the first five books of Moses. And then David wrote many of the Psalms. And then you have the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, these major prophets. And then you have these gospel writers like Matthew and John. And then uh, Paul who wrote these letters to the churches. And so there's all these prophets throughout history who are writing letters to God's people. And now we come to the final book of the Bible. And it's Jesus' book, his revelation. And it's the, the masterpiece of all of them. It's the greatest book that was ever written in history, the Son of God. And of course, that's why we've been studying it for 2,000 years and still discovering new things about it. That It is the greatest piece of literature ever written, the, the capstone of the Bible itself. Okay, so how are we re reading Revelation? It's a revelation of Jesus Christ that was written. It was his word to his bondservants within the first century, okay? 
And that's related to a third interpretive principle that Revelation 1.1 tells us, is that it is about things that must soon take place. It is about things that must soon take place. And by soon take place, I mean when it was written, that would soon take place after it was written. And the opening sentence of the book clarifies to us that this is about a book about things that would happen in the first century. Uh, and uh, chapter 1, verse 3, reiterates the point where it says, for the time is near. And there are many themes in Revelation that correspond with Jesus' great sermon in the Gospels. If you read through the Gospels, Jesus has a sermon called the Olivet Discourse that is describing the destruction of Jerusalem that would happen in 70 AD. And in Matthew 24, 34, this is what Jesus says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And so Revelation was written to prepare early Christians for the great persecution that they would have to endure during the years of 64 to 70 AD, during the reign of the Emperor Nero, during the Jewish wars when the Jews revolted against Rome, and during the siege and destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple that happened in 70 AD. All of these were absolutely massive events in the life of God's people, and they all happened in the first generation of Christians just as Jesus said that they would. Now, all the books of the New Testament are relevant to us, uh, but they were all written in a certain historical situation to specific people, and, and so uh, the, the way that we apply it to ourselves is we have to understand what they meant in their original context to the original people they were written to before we can then apply it to ourselves. And so that's going to be how we'll be reading Revelation. So today, we're going to be picking up again in Revelation 12. And so I'd like to use this passage as a way to kind of summarize what Revelation as a book is about. And I'd like to do that by making just two observations from this passage I just read. Okay, this is what they are. That Revelation is about the turning point of history. And that Revelation is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Two things about Revelation 11 and 12. That Revelation is about the turning point of history and Revelation is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I should say, as we go through this series, it's probably going to be more of a teaching series than application. I'm going to try to get as much application as, as I can. But as you can see, that passage I just read to you, there's lots of little details. You're like, what does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, we've got to go through each little part and explain what it means. And so it's more going to be a teaching series and the sermon today will be that way. So... All right, two points for us on Revelation. The first is this, is that Revelation is about the turning point of history. Revelation is about the turning point of history. And, you, and you'll notice how this passage begins in verse 15, how it says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And this tells us that we're picking up the vision of Revelation part, way, part of the way through. So, so what's happened so far up to Revelation chapter 11? Well, um, the beginning of Revelation talks about how Jesus is writing to seven churches that are in modern-day Turkey. And so there's specific people that Jesus is giving this revelation to. But in Revelation uh, 4 and 5, it describes Jesus, after his death and resurrection, ascending into heaven to be seated at the right hand of God the Father. And in that scene, he's described as this lion lamb. And he's this lion lamb who is given a scroll. 
And the scroll has seven seals. And so over chapter six and seven, these seals one by one are opened and they correspond to all these, you know, kind of cataclysmic events that are happening in the earth. And after this uh, seven seals are opened, then there are these seven angels who blow seven trumpets. And again, those seven trumpets correspond to events that are happening in the earth. And what we said last summer is that the seals and the trumpets correspond basically to the time of the period of the book of Acts uh, and the writing of most of the New Testament. So if you read through the book of Acts, this is like a heavenly description of all that's happening in the formation of the church after the Holy Spirit was given to the church and and the the suffering and persecutions that God's people endured. And if you read through the trumpets, in the sixth of those trumpets, this is in chapter 10, There's a description of Jesus that he looks like a giant angel and he has one foot on the sea and one foot on the land and he's holding this scroll that's now opened, the scroll that the the lamb had and he gives it to the apostle John and he says, I want you to eat the scroll because he's going to eat it and now he's going to speak the contents of what the scroll says and after he eats the scroll in Revelation 10, 11, John writes, and I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Now we are at the end of the trumpets. So we just read the seventh and final trumpet. And John is about to speak in the chapters that come the contents of the scroll. He's going to speak about the nations and the peoples and the languages and what's going to happen. And that's what the remainder of Revelation is about, is about the contents of those scrolls. And this scroll... That, that, that Jesus had tells about the turning point of history. And you can see that that scroll is described there in verse 15. Maybe this is the verse that captures the whole book of Revelation maybe better than any verse. Verse 15 says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The enthronement of Jesus is the turning point of all history where all the kingdoms of the world become his. And so this passage, we see two components to the turning point of all history. And I want to point those out, okay? There's two components to the turning point of all history. The first is a change has happened in heaven. Why was the first generation the turning point of all history? Because a change has happened in heaven. And you notice how it says in verse uh, 16, and the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. Now, if you go back and listen to the sermon from last summer on Revelation chapter 4, you'll see that the 24 elders there are, are angelic beings that are like priests who are in the heavenly temple and they serve before God. And what's happening in this verse is very similar to what happens in chapter 4. If you read about chapter 4, these 24 elders uh, take their crowns and they cast them down before the Lamb who is now seated on the throne. And what's basically happening is these angels are resigning their authority before Jesus Christ. Why are the angels resigning their authority before Christ? Well, if you go back to Psalm chapter 8, It says this. This is how Psalm 8 describes human beings. Psalm 8, verse 4 and 5. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. See, humans were made a little lower than angels. 
Humans were originally made to be under the authority of angels. The angels were reigning. But then it says, and crowned him with glory and honor. And the book of Hebrews quotes uh, Psalm 8 and clarifies it for us, saying that the psalm is fulfilled in Jesus. This is Hebrews 2, verse 9. says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. So Jesus was made a little lower than the angels when he became human, crowned with glory and honor. And so when Jesus became human, he became lower than the angels. But when he ascended into heaven and was seated at the right hand of the throne, he is now the one given authority, and the angels no longer have the authority. And so the angels have now resigned their authority. And so this is the great change that has happened in heaven. Before the coming of Christ, humanity and Israel were under the guardianship of angels, the authority of angels, and now the age of the angels has ended. And they are laying down their crowns, and they're coming down from their thrones, and now there is a human being on the throne in heaven, namely Jesus Christ. And you see here, you notice in verse 16, how it mentions the thrones in heaven, the plural thrones. You know where the next place where plural thrones in heaven appear? There's the one throne that's mentioned many times in general. That's where God's throne. But the plural thrones doesn't appear till Revelation 20. And guess who's on those thrones in Revelation 20? Human martyrs who have shed their blood for the gospel. And now they are given the thrones that the angels were on. And so there is a change that is happening in heaven that the age of the angels has ended and the age of man has begun. And in fact, that's exactly what it says in verse 17, where it says, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. How could God begin to reign? Well, it's because Jesus is now reigning on the throne. There is a change in the authority. It is now the Son, the Christ, the God-man is on the throne. And the ordering of Revelation is always that there are things that happen in heaven first, and then they happen second on the earth. And so that's, uh, that's, uh, and so that's the second thing. First, there's a change that happens in heaven. But the second thing about the turning point in history is that a change has also begun in the earth. So there's this great change that's happened in heaven, but also a change has begun in the earth. And when Jesus is enthroned in heaven, what happens on the earth? Well, verse, nine, verse 18 tells us, the nations raged, but your wrath came. Now that little line, the nations uh, raged, is again a quote from the Psalms, but this time it's Psalm 2. And uh, Psalm 2 begins, Psalm 2 verse 1 begins by saying, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? And what's interesting about Psalm 2, if you know Psalm 2, what's Psalm 2 about? It's about the enthronement of the Messiah. Psalm 2, later, Psalm 2 verse 5 says this, Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. Now remember that phrase, rod of iron, because we're going to come back to that later. But that's from Psalm 2. It's a prediction of when Jesus would be enthroned in heaven. And so his father gave him as an inheritance all the nations of the world. And in Revelation, 
Jesus has begun his reign over the earth when he ascended into heaven. And here we are. We're 2,000 years later. We're literally on the opposite side of the planet. And we're all gathered here uh, giving our allegiance to Jesus as our king. His kingdom, you know, there have been empires that have risen and fallen over those centuries after centuries. And yet here he is. He has people in every nation that have offered their loyalty to him. Jesus has millions, hundreds of millions of people around the world who would be willing to die for him. That is the expansion of his kingdom. And I love the way that this passage describes Jesus' reign in the earth. What is the effect that Jesus does Jesus' reign bring into the earth? I love the end of verse 18 where it says, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Jesus destroys the destroyers. And I wish I had more time to unpack how over the past 2,000 years, the thousands of ways this has proven true in Jesus' kingdom. But maybe I'll just give you one example. Uh, Luke Ferry is an atheist philosopher. He's at the University of Paris. I don't know if he's still there, but he has a little a survey of the history of philosophy called The Brief History of Thought. And in there, he talks about the influence of Christianity on human culture. And he has a short comment in there. Even as an atheist, as a philosopher, he says, even to this day, when it, civilizations who have not deeply encountered and been transformed by the gospel do not understand human rights. Like throughout history, cultures come to understand the dignity of human beings when they have at some point in their history embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ and been transformed by it. That's the amazing thing, that it's the reign of Jesus that brings the destruction of the destroyers. That's proved historically. That is true today. That's an amazing thing, an amazing statement to say of human history. And why is that? It's because humanity is brutal. It is filled with destroyers. And the great change that's happened in heaven that Jesus is now enthroned has begun to change the earth, the destroying destroyers of the earth. And so Revelation is describing the events over the 40-year period from the ascension of Jesus in 30 AD to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And that generation is the turning point of human history. And the change is so significant that it's described in Revelation as the sun going dark and the stars falling from heaven. Because in that generation, there was a massive change in heaven, right? Those who were reigning in heaven, the angels have now been dethroned and now Jesus is on the throne. And that was the beginning of a massive change to human culture, which is continuing to unfold to this day. And so that tells us a second way to think about Revelation. So first, Revelation is about the turning point of human history. But second, Revelation is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The turning point of human history was the events around the Son of God coming to earth, dying for our sins, rising from the dead, and his disciples establishing the church and the generation after. And, uh, and Revelation chapter 12 begins with a symbolic recounting of the gospel. There's a woman, there's a dragon, and there's a male child. So I want to explain who's the woman, who's the dragon, who's the male child. Okay, so first, first question is who is the woman? And you see her mentioned there in verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains. 
uh, and the agony of giving birth. So Roman Catholics tend to believe that the woman described here is Mary, the mother of Jesus. I think it's more complicated than that. And uh, as I mentioned in the beginning, the most important interpretive tool that we have for Revelation is the Old Testament. So when we hear these strange imagery, we have to go back to the Old Testament and say, is this imagery appear in the Old Testament at all? And a woman clothed with the sun and the moon and the stars does appear in the Old Testament. Uh, one, maybe the clearest place, is the woman who's the bride in the, in the Song of Songs. Song of Songs is a great love poem of the Old Testament. Song of Songs, uh, chapter 6, verse 10, it says she grows like the dawn, as beautiful as the full moon, as pure as the sun, as awesome as an army with banners. And the woman there is Israel. In the Old Testament, Yahweh, who is the Lord, married himself to Israel. She was his bride. And he says, I've made a marriage covenant with you. And Zion, the city of God, was a virgin who would bear many sons. So Isaiah 66, 8 says, For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. So Zion is this woman who brings forth children. Actually, even in this passage, this woman, she has, she's pregnant with one male child in this, but we'll find out in the passage next week in verse 17 that the dragon made war with the rest of her children. So this woman has many children, not just one. And so the strongest answer to who is this woman is she is Israel, the people through whom the Messiah would come. And actually the name Israel was the name that was given to Jacob in the book of Genesis. If you go back to the book of Genesis, uh, Jacob's son, Joseph, has a dream describing the 12 tribes of Israel and, and his family. And this is what the dream says. Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. So there's the sun, the moon, there's 11 stars, but Joseph is the 12th star. So there's actually 12 stars. So the sun, moon, and stars represents the people of Israel. And that same imagery is used of this woman here. And so you might say, well, what about Mary? She's the mother of Jesus. Where is she? Well, I wouldn't uh, say this is specifically just Mary, but if you go back even further into the book of Genesis where the first promise of the gospel is spoken. It's about a woman with a child, and it's spoken to the serpent. So the same images are there back in Genesis chapter 3, where the Lord says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And even in the Old Testament, there's a long line of faithful women who struggled to have children, and yet God's purposes came forth through them, And they all appear in Jesus' genealogy. And Mary is the last in the long line of them. And so she represents the history of Israel and the promises of Israel. And she's represented in this woman, but not her alone. So first, who is the woman? She is Israel, the queen of heaven, the bride of Yahweh, through whom the Messiah was born. Second, who is the dragon? You see him there in verse 3 where it says, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. Well, the passage that we'll look at next week actually explicitly tells us who the dragon is. In uh, chapter 12, verse 9, says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So the dragon is Satan. Most of you probably could have guessed that, all right? But then it says in verse 4, 
His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Now that verse was used by John Milton. John Milton wrote the the great epic poem, Paradise Lost, which describes the fall of humanity and actually the fall of Satan and how he rebelled against heaven. And John Milton thought that that verse was about when, when Satan rebelled against God, that he took a third of the angels with him. And they rebelled with him. But that'd be kind of strange to appear in this. Here's this passage that's describing what happened in the first century about Israel is finally giving birth to the Messiah and, uh, and about the persecution of the followers of Jesus. Why all of a sudden would we get transported back to the beginning of history when, you know, Satan rebelled against God? And so I think probably a better explanation is that something happened closer to the first century. And when you read the New Testament, you find that Israel in Jesus' day was filled with a demonic presence. Jesus and his disciples were constantly meeting people who were demon-possessed. Likely those are the third of the stars, the angels, evil angels that had been cast down to the land of Israel. And so the woman is Israel, the dragon is Satan. But lastly, who then is the male child? You see in the second part of verse 4 there, And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Remember, I mentioned that from Psalm 2. The rod of iron is a reference to Psalm 2 and the enthronement of the Messiah. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And so that tells us that the male child here is the Messiah from Psalm 2, who, of course, is Jesus. And what's interesting about this passage is it basically says Jesus was born as a baby and then he, you know, Satan's going to attack him, and he's immediately taken up into heaven. And you say, well, what happened to Jesus' life and dying on the cross and rising from the dead? And then he's taken up to heaven to be seated at God's right hand uh, at his throne. Um, why isn't the cross mentioned? And it's because Revelation is not about Jesus' suffering. It's about his disciples' suffering. And in that way, it's very similar to the book of Acts. You know, uh, some of you will know that the Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, also wrote the book of Acts. And so he wrote the Gospel of Luke. This is a story about what happened to, uh, in Jesus' life, his death and his resurrection. And then that was volume one. And then volume two is about Jesus' disciples and the events they're preaching the Gospel and the sufferings that they had over the next generation. Well, uh, Revelation is the same way. Revelation was written by the Apostle John. John wrote a gospel, the Gospel of John. That was volume one and about Jesus' suffering. And now he's writing volume two, which which is about revelation about the disciples in the same way that Acts was written. And actually, if you look at John, just a side note here, if you look at John and Revelation, one of the earliest things that happens at the beginning of John is there's the wedding feast at Cana. When Jesus turns the water into wine, there's a wedding. At the end of Revelation, it ends with a wedding, the marriage feast of the Lamb. And so you see how this passage ends in verse 6. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. And so the people of God give birth to the Messiah, but then they are not done. And we're going to see next week that this woman, who is the people of God, is pursued by the dragon. And that number there, 1,260 days, which is about three and a half years, 
is uh, it's a length of time that's repeated a number of places in, in Revelation. And I believe that what it's referring to is the years from 64 to 68 BC, which is actually right when the book of Acts ends. The book of Acts ends with the Apostle Paul in Rome, imprisoned. And in just the years after that will be the great persecution by the Emperor Nero's, the first systematic persecution of Christians. And right after which, the Roman Empire will be thrown into total upheaval and Jerusalem will be destroyed. And so we're going to see how those events of those years are detailed in the book of Revelation and the chapters that are to come. So Revelation is a book meant to prepare Jesus' disciples for suffering and martyrdom. It is a revelation of Jesus Christ that God showed his servants, the first generation of disciples, the things that must soon take place. That generation was the turning point of all history when there was a great change in heaven that has resulted in the most important changes in the history of the earth, the destroying of the destroyers. And we are a part of the woman who gave birth to the Messiah who is now pursued by the dragon. And if we want to be followers of the crucified Messiah, we too must be willing to go and suffer and die with him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for uh, your incredible word. We think of just in these few verses, how much is there? And we pray that these, um, these words would be used for our endurance, that we would be a people that would be willing to suffer for what we believe in the love of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And Lord, we long to see his kingdom come more and more here in Bellingham, in Whatcom County, and throughout the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.